You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Tunach. Very glad that you are here, especially if you're a guest worshiping with us. We just appreciate uh, you choosing to come worship with us this morning. We want to get into the series uh, Warriors in, in, in just a minute. I wanted to first, can we make a little bit of noise for the mothers in the room with yeah. us today? Amen. Amen. We want to take a second to uh, acknowledge you, let you know that we love you. Hopefully you were able to pick up the gift that we had out here for you. We just want to do something special, let you know. We know that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We love you. We're grateful for everything that you do. And we wanted to make sure we acknowledge that. At the same time, and I want to say this before, before I pray for, for our time together today. At the same time, I know Mother's Day is not an easy day for many of us. There are, there are many of us because we maybe because we aren't able to be with our mothers, maybe because our relationships with our mothers aren't what we want them to be, or for whatever reason, maybe we're not able to be with children. Maybe there are women here with us today that desire to have children and haven't been able to do so. I want to take a minute to pray for those of us that are grieving today, those of us who are uh, who see who experience much sadness and, and grief during Mother's Day. Would you pray with me as well for those of us who who have just a difficult time on, on Mother's Day, and then we'll, we'll get into the sermon. After that, Father, it's a, it's a beautiful yet a difficult time uh, that Mother's Day is. Father, we want to be able to celebrate. We, we definitely appreciate and acknowledge and love and value uh, the mothers that are here. But also, Father, we know that there are many who desire to be with their mothers or mothers who desire to be with their children or, or for whatever reason, Father, there, there's just a lot of difficult. I pray that you would reveal yourself as the very present help as our refuge, as our, as our peace, as our strength, as our fortress, as the one who walks with us and understands our grief and understands our, our pain and even our tears, the one who, who, who was called in Isaiah, uh, you said that you were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Father, will you let all who grieve today, this, this Mother's Day, to know you as the one who both understands grief and is present to walk with us through our grief, and also will return to rid us from our grief forever. Father, we're grateful that that's who you are for us today. And pray for as your word is proclaimed today, Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to walk with you, that you would help us to, to know what it is to, to fight the good fight of faith as you call us to in your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been looking at the, the concept in the series, Warriors, of fighting the good fight of faith. This is how a, Paul described his life in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, I believe it's chapter 5 or chapter 4. He says that I fought the good fight of faith. And also in 1 Timothy, in his first letter that he wrote to his disciple Timothy, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. So we understand that the, a lot of our experience and our walk as believers, as followers of Jesus, is a fight. It's a struggle. It's difficult. It's painful at times. It's not easy. I said last week that there's a, there's a ruggedness to the Christian faith when we walk in it as we are called to, right? That, that we are able to endure and deal with difficulty and pain. It's not always roses. There will be difficulty because God calls us to be warriors. He calls, calls us to be soldiers. I had a conversation with my dad 
a few months ago, and we were just reminiscing on some stuff that was going on when I was in, uh, in high school. And one of the things that he said was his biggest regret when I was in high school, because I, I think I just told him I was trying to pay off these student loans. And he, was, he said, and one of my biggest regrets is that I never... I didn't push you hard enough to apply for different scholarships and things like that because he felt like I could have gotten more. And I got defensive at first. I was like, no, I applied for a lot. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, no, you, yes, you did, but there were a lot that you didn't apply for. And I know we got some saints in the house that understand that student loan companies need to learn the fundamental doctrine that Jesus paid it all. Amen. All to him, I owe. But they don't understand that. But they don't understand. They don't get it. I'm trying to preach the gospel to them. They don't want to hear me. They ain't feeling us today. <laughs> Amen. They don't know my testimony. I was fighting against my dad at that time. I was fighting against the very thing, the, the very one who was trying to help me. I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I've applied for all these different scholarships. And now I wish that I had listened. I wish that I was not fighting against him. He was just looking out for me. He had seen more than I had seen. He knew more than I knew. But yet still, I resisted against what he was calling me to do. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Today, again, Romans chapter 8, verse 6 through 7. I'll start reading at verse 6. Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Today's sermon is entitled, Pick Your Battles. Today's sermon is entitled, Pick Your Battles. I've been saying for the last few weeks that we are all warriors, that we are called to fight. But I want to make sure that we understand that every one of us fights all the time. It's not that you become a believer and now it's time for you to start fighting. The reality is, no, you've always been fighting. The question is, who are you fighting for and with and who are you fighting against is the question. Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Hostility is the posture you take towards someone that you see as an enemy. When our minds are set on the flesh, when we are focused on our, our disordered desires that we have in this life, says that our minds are then hostile towards God. I want to try to explain in case that's a little bit confusing. You see, at that time, kings were, were often, usually, generally speaking, dictators, right? Kings, uh, it was very different. They had more authority and less accountability than our presidents have today, right? There's, there's some amount of accountability. There's some amount of, of, of restriction. But at that point, the king, what they said went. If you were in their territory... Whether or not the king was good or the king was bad was, was, generally speaking, the sole determiner for whether or not the kingdom went well. It rested all on the king. If he was a good king, then things went good for you and your people. If he wasn't a good king, then obviously things weren't good. There was so much riding on whether or not this king was good and strong or not. So either, so this made the king very polarizing, very polarizing. So either you were for the king and you wanted the king to continue to reign, and you thought that that was best, or you desired for someone to come in through the strength of their military to defeat the king and, generally speaking, kill him so that someone else could come and rule. There was generally no in-between. The only way that that king would not be ruling tomorrow or next year or 20 years from now is when the king died. That's the only way. So either you wanted another army, another military, another king to rise up and overthrow this king, or you desired for this king to continue on. 
In our day, you could say something bad about the president. People might oppose you with their words, but for the most part, you're able to do that. In that day, if you publicly talked bad about the king or publicly opposed the king, oftentimes they would send soldiers to come get you and make an example out of you for your opposition to the king. You see, they, they, they treated you as if you were hostile if you disagreed with the king. If you, were in, if you were in opposition to the king, you are an enemy to the kingdom. And we all know that Jesus comes and says, I am king. I reign and rule over everything. He looks at this earth and he says, mine. He looks at your possessions and he says, mine. He looks at your family and he says, mine. He looks at your children and he says, mine. He looks at all of creation and says, this belongs to me. I rule and reign over and that is what is best for everyone. And what Paul is saying is that anyone who sets their mind on the flesh or on living in a way that is not in accordance with him, God sees it as hostility towards him. So what he said in verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Again, the flesh is the sinful nature that we have. It's the culmination of all of our ungodly desires and, and cravings that we, we receive that were, were put on us when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when darkness began to rule. Now, I want us to see what this, what this means in light of the fact that Jesus came to be king. One of the first things that it means is that with Jesus, you're either friend or foe. No one is neutral. Either you believe that Jesus should reign over the universe as king or you are his enemy. This is the way it works with the king. It means there's no one that truly just likes Jesus but doesn't follow him. That that does not exist. That there is no one who is just like, I'm just okay with Jesus, but I don't submit to him. No, no, no. He says that I am king and I, I should, I do and I should be reigning over everything and everyone should submit to me. Either he is good, either he is the good, or he is what is wrong with the world. He has led millions to endure suffering, many of which have been martyred because he has promised eternal life to all those who sacrifice for him and who follow him and worship him. Right? Either he is the greatest king that ever lived or he is the worst that has ever lived. Either he's everything or he's nothing. We should either accept everything he says and give our lives to him or we should not believe a word that he says. We should either join his kingdom to expand it across the globe or we should fight to try to silence everyone who follows him. Those are the only options. There are no other reasonable options when it comes to someone who makes the claims that Jesus makes. And even as believers, we oftentimes, we fight against God. I want to encourage all of us, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that he is either the best or he is the worst, that we should choose our options wisely, for there are only two. Follow, submit, and worship, or be his enemy. There are only two options. We must choose wisely. And we fight against God a lot, even after we become Christians. Because again, as I said earlier, he looks at everything in our lives and he says that it belongs to him, that it is his, that we should submit those things to him. Our relationships, we should submit our gifts, our talents, our abilities to him. We should submit our affections, the direction in general of our lives. We should submit to him. So every moment in this life, we have a decision to make. Are we going to fight side by side with him or are we going to cross swords with him and fight against him? He's going to see all the ways that we turn against him. 
and go after what he doesn't want us to have. And he is going to fight against us. Hear me on this. He's going to fight against us when he sees us doing that. Will we surrender to him or will we continue to fight against him? He's going to see that thing in your life that you honestly think will make you happier than having a relationship with him. And sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll fight against those desires you have in one of two ways. One way he'll do it is he'll, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll let you have it. I'll let you believe that you can find life in it, that you can find contentment for your entire life. I'll let you believe that you can find contentment in it until you actually get it, just so you can see that it's not what you actually thought it was. So hopefully that will grow and nurture your love for him. Or, or maybe he won't let you have it. So that you would run to him, so that you would learn to depend on him, so that you would learn to rely on him. Either way, he is fighting against that desire that you have to trust in something more than you trust in him. The question is, will we fight alongside him against our selfishness, against our pride, or will we fight against him? Will we submit to him? Will we submit to our pride? Will he be our king or will we let our fleshly desires reign and rule over us? Either way, will we trust and pursue him through it all or will we fight against him? He knows the best thing for his kingdom and the best thing for you is that you see your possessions, including your money, in light of how do these work best for his purposes? He wants you to sacrificially give to his work. Will you fight against him as he tries to tear us away from our love of money and selfishness? Or will we fight alongside him against our selfishness? You have to understand that in this day and age, we live after Jesus came, died and rose and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. Yet before he comes back to rid us of the presence of sin. So in the kingdom of God, we, we, we are in the kingdom of God, and to some degree we have the Holy Spirit, we have the kingdom of God in us, but at the same time we have darkness in us as well. We have sin in us as well, and this, the, the cosmic battle of the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness that, that wages war in our world also rages inside of us at the same time. That it's a war that's huge, that is sweeping in the earth, and it is a war that takes place every day internally inside of each of us, that the battleground of this war is our hearts. Are we going to fight against him or are we going to fight with him? When God says, I know that person hurt you and offended you and wronged you, but I'm calling you to forgive them like I have forgiven you. Will you fight against him or will you fight with him, alongside him, against selfishness, against the hatred that is in our hearts? He's going to call each of us to sacrifice our time and our desires to build deep relationships with people that oftentimes you won't even like for his purposes. He's going to call you to reach out to people that are difficult for you to be around so that you can bless them, so that you can minister to them, so that you can love them. Will you fight against him? Will you fight against his good work to build his kingdom, to grow you into maturity, or will you fight alongside him against your own selfishness? Will you set your mind on the things of the flesh and walk as an enemy of God, or will you embrace the fact that his ways are better than our ways? When you're tempted to lust after that person that you're not married to, that you've had your eye on for a minute now, can we be real today? 
the one you've lusted after before, when you feel that temptation to lust after them, will you fight alongside your God against that lust or will you fight against God in those moments that no one else sees? In your thought life that no one else is aware of, will you fight against God? I saw one pastor say one time, wandering eyes are signs of a wandering heart. Will you fight to align your heart with God's will or will you fight against your God? When you're tempted to be envious, when you're tempted to be arrogant, thinking more highly of yourself than you should, when you're tempted to be given to anger and lash out to those around you, when you're tempted to be lazy and slothful, when you're tempted to lie, when you're tempted to not trust God, when you're tempted to gossip and talk down about someone to others because you really don't care for them that much. Will you see him as a good king who is looking out for your good or will you fight against the one who is your help? To me, this all really comes down to one question. Is he a good king or is he not? Is he a good king or is he not? As I said a little bit earlier, in the time when kings reigned and ruled in in the earth over, over all the different kingdoms that were always at war with each other, whether or not you were okay living under that king's rule was really just coming down to, is he a good king or not? Is he worthy of being submitted to? Is he worthy of following? Is he worthy to rule and reign over you and over every area and aspect of your life? Or is he not? See, having faith in Jesus isn't just having faith in the fact that he exists, right? Satan knows he exists. Having faith in Jesus, it's not just having, not just mentally ascending to a place where you understand that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to save sinners. That's not the essence of having faith in God. Satan and all the demons, they know this. Having faith in God means you have faith in the fact that he is a good king, that he should be reigning and you should be worshiping him. This is what it is to have faith in God. Having faith in God, thank you, having faith in God is not just a mental understanding of what he has done, but it is to take what we understand about him and so believe and trust in him that we say, yes, I'll give my life to you. You should be the one directing my life. If you actually did what the Bible says that you did, yes, I submit to you, I surrender to you, I don't, I don't want to fight against you anymore. Do you have faith in him? that he is the king that he claims to be. That's what it all comes down to. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it wasn't because they didn't believe God existed. Satan caused them to doubt his goodness. No, 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 no. You, you won't die if you eat from this fruit. You, you, see, God really just doesn't want you to be like him, and he knows if you eat this fruit, then you're going to know good and evil just like him, and you're going to be like him. What is he saying? Hey, God's holding out on you. God's not looking out for you. He caused them to doubt God's goodness, not his existence. True faith in God is about knowing his character, knowing how good he actually is. The temptation of the enemy is that God can't be trusted. That I should actually trust my feelings and my desires over the love of the creator of the universe. He didn't go into the garden telling them, Hey, you shouldn't believe that God is real. No, he told them God wasn't worthy to be trusted as their king. Is he good or is he not? 
Should we embrace him, follow him, worship him, or should we wage war against him and try to overthrow him and prevent his reign from extending in the universe and in our hearts? If he is a good king, submit to him and exhaust your life fighting alongside him in the kingdom of God. Exhaust every bit, of, every bit of giftedness and every bit of strength and every bit of energy that you have doing his will if he's a good king. If not, throw the whole Bible away and don't do any of it. These are the only logical responses to him saying that he is the king that reigns over anything and everything. There's a story in the Old Testament that I want to share with you that helps me remember. It just helps me remember that he is the king that we should truly trust the one that we should fight alongside instead of fighting against. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 14. 2 Kings 6, we're going to start at verse 14. I should have said this a little bit earlier. There should be a Bible in the back of the seat in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, please take that one home with you. We would love for you to have that Bible. We want everyone to have one. I want to give you a little bit of context for this story in the Old Testament that we're going to get into. Serious king is currently waging war against the king of Israel, the king of God's people, right? They're they're waging war. They're coming on these raids. At this point, they are already inside the kingdom of Israel. So this is Syria who has a kingdom somewhere else. The king is sending his troops on these raids to destroy and try to take over the kingdom of Israel. But Syria is having problems. Because when, when the king of Syria tells his troops exactly where, where they're supposed to go, the prophet Elisha is telling the king of Israel everything that he says because God is showing him what the king of Syria is doing. So Elisha is telling the king their plan. So the king of Syria thinks it's to the point that the king of Syria actually thinks there's a traitor in the camp. He thinks, who is telling the king of Israel what's going on? And, and, the, and the king's uh, advisors and counselors tell him, well, no, Elisha, the prophet, he's telling He's telling the king of Israel where you are and what you're about to do, and that's why you can't catch him. So the king of Syria says, okay, then we need to find Elisha. We need to go find this prophet, this man of God. We need to go capture him. We've been chasing the king. We need to be going after this prophet. So this is where we pick up in the story. So this is talking about what the king of Syria does as he's looking to fight against God's people. Verse 14. So he sent, he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, that's the servant of Elisha the prophet, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha's servant, this young man is panicking, right? Literally, they're they're in this town and Syria's army just surrounded the whole town and they're, they're in the mountains, they're everywhere. And Elisha's servant is like, uh, we got a problem. We got issues. The army is here now. They're no longer going after the king where the military would have been there to protect him. They have come here to us. Let's continue reading verse 16. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha said. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open the eyes that he, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So you see the, the Syrian army, it said a little bit earlier, had these horses and these chariots that were surrounding the city that Elisha and his servant were in. But then Elisha prays, God opens the eyes of the servant. Now we see horses and chariots of fire that are set up all in the mountains after Elisha said there are more who are for us than those who are 
with them. You see, the Syrian army is outmatched, but they don't know it. They can't win this fight, but they don't know it because they can't see what's actually going on. And don't get me wrong, they should have known, right? They should have known if God is already telling Elisha where they are and where they are going, then Elisha probably is going to be protected by this same God. They had reason to understand that they were not going to be able to overtake Elisha and overtake the people of God, but they continued to fight against not just Elisha, but the God of Elisha. They continued to fight against him, even though they had all the evidence that they needed that they should cease this fight. That they should, they should stop trying to fight against these people. They should have known, but they were blind. Their pride blinded them and caused them to continue to fight against the living God. Are you blind to that today? Even though God has shown us who he is. Even though God has revealed that any fighting against him is useless, it is pointless, it is a waste of energy. Every ounce of energy we put into fighting against God, it is a waste of our time. It is never productive. It is a fight that we cannot win. Have you realized that you're outmatched in your fight against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Have you stopped to consider just who it is that we are fighting against? I want to make sure we understand when we talk about this, this inner war, I'm not, I'm not, the picture is not where I have this good angel right here and this bad angel right here on my shoulder and they're telling me what I should do. No, 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 no. This is about our flesh and our desires and the king of kings and lord of lords, right? These are not two equally sized forces that are pulling us in different directions. No, it's, it's us, creation versus creator. It is us, weak in comparison to him, almighty creator of the universe. We are outmatched. I love how 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 writes it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. That the one we're fighting against reigns, that we look, we look the same as this Syrian army. Fighting a battle that we can't win, being overmatched, but being so proud that we don't understand it or see it that way. Pick your battles. Choose wisely. I'm going to keep reading verses 18 and 19. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So Elisha the prophet prays that the enemies of God will be struck with blindness. And then he tells them, let's be honest, y'all don't really want me. Y'all want the king, right? Y'all actually came into this land because y'all want the king, but y'all couldn't get to him because of me. So now you're coming towards me. But now that I got you blind, I'm going to take you where you wanted to go in the first place. This is what Elisha says. So imagine being there. Imagine being there. Elisha leads this entire army that is now blinded to the king who they came to war against. Imagine being in Israel at this time. You see them. I don't know if they're marching single file or doubles or whatever it is. None of them can see anything at all. And Elisha is walking them to the king, to their enemy. They are the essence of helplessness at this point, of helpless at this point. They cannot see. None of them can see walking in pure darkness. They have invaded their enemy's territory. They've been warring against them. They must be absolutely terrified. 
I can only imagine that they're just waiting to find out that they're going to be killed. But don't miss this. At this point, they're not in any more danger than they were already in. They just are more aware now than they used to be. See, actually, the fact that they have been blinded actually opened their eyes to the reality of their situation. They never stood a chance in the first place, but now that they've been blinded, they realize how helpless they actually are. The blindness, they were actually able to see until they were blinded. Continue on, verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they they were in the midst of Samaria. This is the capital of Israel. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? So this is the, notice how the king of Israel talks to Elisha the prophet and calls him father. He does this because Elisha is the prophet. And when you, when the king will go to the prophet, he's actually looking to hear directly from God. So he's actually asking God, should I kill them now? These are our enemies. They're a threat to God's people. They're a threat to me, God, the ones that you care about. These are the ones that are trying to kill them. Do I just strike them down right here and now? Verse 22. He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? And look at what he says. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. God speaks down from heaven. Says, no, do not kill them. And matter of fact, make a table for them. I know of a lot of Christians that have shouted and quoted Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Usually when I hear that verse quoted, people are saying that even though people are are hating on me and trying to put me down, God has made a table for me, so I'm going to be okay. I want to ask, but what if God told you, yeah, but the enemies that are around you when I make this table for you, invite them to the table also. Prepare a seat for them at the table as well. This is the type of love that this king is showing, that God is showing through this king. That's a whole other sermon. I'll get to that one later. This, but this one here, I want to get back to my main point. This is the nature of God's love towards us. He doesn't prepare for his enemies so that he can, so that he can shine on them and show off on them. He prepares a table for his enemies to welcome them, to welcome, to prepare a seat for them at his table, every one of here is just like the Syrian army. We fought against God, fought against the one true God. He's shown us that we're no match for him, but we continue to fight against him because we're blinded by our pride. My prayer is that through this sermon, through many, a million other things in our lives, that he will let us see how outmatched we are in this fight. And then we who have warred against God one day will stand before our king and the question is asked, Will this king condemn us as we deserve? And if you're in Christ, the answer today and forever is no. We have warred with him, been outmatched, continued to fight against him. And the answer is no. In Revelation chapter 19, the Bible describes this wedding feast. This time when God is finally united with his people, where the table has been spread for all of his people from all of time past, from the present and from the future, are going to be with him at the table. And there's two categories of people at this feast. There's God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And everybody else on the guest list used to be an enemy of God, but then has acknowledged that he is a king that is worthy of being followed, worthy of being worshipped, worthy of being high and lifted up. And that is the rest of the guest list at the table. 
that instead of preparing for us condemnation to death, he prepared for us a table. Instead of executing us, he welcomed us. Instead of shunning us and sending us away, he accepted us as we are. Instead of banishing us from his presence, he welcomed us to a feast. We treated him as enemies and he made us his best friends. And hear this. This is the whole point. This is the whole reason I brought up that story. That is why we trust him to be a good king. That is why we trust him to be a good king. That is why we can stand confidently and say there is no one else worthy of submitting to, worthy of worshiping, worthy of following than the one who not only prepared a feast for us so that we could be with him, but died instead of killing us. Instead of condemning us to death, he condemned himself to death so that we could have a seat at his table. There is no one more worthy of following and worshiping and submitting to than the one who you were fighting against while he was welcoming you in. That Syrian army that day, they thought they were coming to make war with the king of Israel, and the whole time God had a plan to welcome them in. They were coming to him to fight against him, and the whole time God said, come on, I'm about to show you this love, I'm about to show you some grace, I'm about to show you this mercy that you have no idea about. Come on, come on through. You think you're going to win, you think you have a chance because you're so proud. I'm going to humble you. First, I'm going to break you. I'm going to humble you. And then I'm going to display a love for you that you cannot imagine, that you cannot believe, and that you would have never expected. This is the love of our God. This is why we trust him. This is why even if we don't understand what he's calling us to do as he is reigning in our hearts, this is why even when he's trying to pull us away from things that we love and we think we'll find joy in, we still trust him. Whether or not he's good is not up for debate. Whether or not he is for our good is not being left to be determined. The jury is not out. He is good. The question is, do we believe him? Do we have faith in him that he is everything that he says he is? I want to read verse 23 again. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. They stopped the fighting. We came to fight against God. We, we, we realized we were outmatched. He humbled us, and then he, he welcomed us to the table. He fed us with, with bread. As Christians, we get fed the bread of life. He has loved us in this way. We're done fighting against him. They gave up the fight. They said, we're done being enemies of this God. Is that your heart today? Is that all of our hearts? Growth and maturing for the Christian means coming to, again and again, these epiphanies of, oh yeah, why am I fighting against him? Why am I fighting against him? He's not the one I should be fighting against. He's the one that I should be fighting alongside. I should be fighting with him, not against him. This is what maturity for the believer looks like. It's looking at him and realizing because of how good he is. I'm done fighting against him. I give up. I surrender. God, you deserve the crown. I don't. You win. I can see it now. My eyes have been opened. I can see now, and I'm done fighting against the one that is my help. I'm done fighting against the one who loves me more than anyone else. My prayer is that would be our heart today and every day. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have proven that you are worthy to reign as king. That you have proven that you are worthy of us putting down our swords as we fought against you. 
that you are worthy of us bowing our knees and submitting to you. Because when we were your enemies, you made us your friends. When we came to fight against you, you you already had a plan in place to reveal your love and your grace and your mercy to us. Father, help us to bear these things in mind in the moments when we're tempted to turn away from you. In the moments when we're tempted to sin against you, to fight against you, God, help us to remember, no, no, no. We shouldn't be fighting against you. You are our help. You are, you are almighty. We can't even win no matter how hard we fight. Father, I'm grateful today of your patience with us. Sinners who continue to rebel against you, who continue to forget the fact that you have made peace between us and you, and we continue to want to fight and be hostile against you as we set our mind on the flesh. Humble us, Lord. Do whatever you have to do to open our eyes. Whatever you have to bring into our lives to open our eyes, God, would you do that, that we might trust you? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.